The Amalgam episodes continue. Episode 2 of our Amalgam collection sees us looking at DC's slate of six one-shot issues of Amalgam Comics during the DC vs. Marvel comic event from the 90s. Is it good? Is it bad? Or is it somewhere in between? Find out, because the byword starts now. Welcome into episode 164 of the Nerd By Word. Today, during our By Word Big Talk, we are looking at DC's slate of amalgam books back from the 90s. Uh, we are looking at the six one-shots that they were responsible for publishing, including Amazon, Assassins, Doctor Strange Fate, JLX, Legends of the Dark Claw, and Super Soldier. But first, as always, it is time for... Dave, what you got for us this week? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think one of the most hotly debated things going on in the world of video games right now is maybe perhaps slowly coming into focus. Uh, and that is the successor console to the Nintendo Switch. Um, as many gamers have probably noted, the Switch has been around for a hot second, uh, which is incredibly interesting considering console cycles uh, tend to run somewhere between five and six years uh, in the you know last few generations, and the Switch is hanging on for dear life um, and still going pretty strong. But there have been increasing uh, rumors going around that a, uh, a successor to the Nintendo Switch, uh, which most people online are just referring to as the Switch 2 right now, is actually in the works, and Nintendo is targeting a uh, late 2024 release. Uh, the problem, of course, is that Nintendo is, as always, incredibly mum on all of the speculation. Uh, but now there are uh, increasing rumors out in the wild and leaks that indicate that uh, there might be some real movement on this front. Uh, in particular, uh, there was some talk that uh, some people have gotten hold of uh, Switch 2 developer kits, uh, including at Square Enix, um, and that uh, there is already active development going into um, developing for the Switch 2. Um, and so we have now uh, at least some indication of what might be going on with this console. So leakers are indicating uh, that the Switch 2 is going to be backwards compatible to the current generation of games, but that uh, Switch 2 games will be running on a new cartridge format, uh, apparently to provide more space uh, is the speculation. There is some discussion that there is a new kind of camera feature involved on the Switch 2. Um, but the most interesting thing, I think, by far, uh, that is going around right now is that the Switch 2 is going to be a significant power boost over the Switch 1. Uh, one of the things that gaming fans have noted for quite a while already now, especially since probably the Nintendo Wii generation, is that Nintendo consoles graphically have not been on the cutting edge really anymore. I would say the last time that they tried to compete 
uh, graphically was probably the Nintendo GameCube generation. And from then on, they have really focused on controller innovations and gameplay innovations, much less so, uh, much more so than, let's say, graphical fidelity or trying to stand toe to toe with something like a PlayStation or an Xbox. And a lot of hardcore gamers, because of that, have kind of ter- uh, turned their back on Nintendo, saying that, you know, the kind of games that they want to play, you know, uh, aren't really. Uh, on Nintendo consoles anymore because they don't have the graphical power to run them. Well, uh, a a new leak is uh, indicating uh, from a guy called I Am Hero 2 uh, that uh, this new Switch console is going to be able to run games uh, on par with what runs on a PS5. Um, at a minimum, it'll uh, pack upgraded specs so that the Final Fantasy VII remake looks and runs like a PS5 game. Um, under the hood, there's some um, talk about a Unreal Engine-based upscaling uh, program that is actually um, in like a demo phase right now, actually running on this new Nintendo console. Um, so there is definitely a possibility that Nintendo has, after several gaming generations, now several consoles generations, decided uh, to actually try to compete in, uh, or at least be on par in graphical fidelity. And that would be, that would be quite a whopper. Uh, now, there is no indication if the Nintendo Switch 2 is going to be, uh, you know, continue to be a handheld console, but my guess would be yes. Um, if they're talking about this as a successor to the Nintendo Switch. Um, It's been hinted that select members of the press uh, were also given a first look at uh, this next-gen hardware during Gamescom 2023, a trade show that took place in Germany recently. And so that is fueling a lot of these online whispers about the console. Um, When Nintendo decides to announce this thing and how much of these quote-unquote leaks and rumors turn out to be true, uh, that's anyone's guess at this point. I think it's fair to expect a um, successor to the Nintendo Switch sooner rather than later uh, as the hardware is getting along the tooth. and Nintendo is definitely going to look to uh, to upgrade in some way, shape, or form. But it's definitely uh, something to watch. It would be very interesting for a Nintendo console and a portable console at that um, to have some kind of graphical parity with what can run on a PS4 or PS5. I think that that would be a game changer for Nintendo as so many more third-party developers could bring their games uh, to a Nintendo console. Um, and we have seen that that kind of thing is possible with my uh, beloved Steam Deck, right? Um, it definitely is possible to pack a lot of power into a portable console these days. So I'm very, very curious to see where this is going, Chris. This this might change my plan of attack because I've been planning on purchasing another Nintendo Switch. Um, the one that I had stopped turning on, so I sold it basically for parts. And I've been switchless for the better part of a year or two. And I've been dying to get back in, um, but this this might change that. I don't know if I just need to wait it out and get the second Switch, but um, it's really interesting, the graphical part. I, I totally agree with you. That's the most interesting development because I heard in a GameStop, and I think I've said this on the show before, and I think it's it was almost like an aha moment where a GameStop employee 
I had a great conversation with, we talked for a good 30 minutes and he said, you, well, you know, Nintendo is the Apple of gaming. And that just kind of stopped me in my tracks because that there's like, there's such like a, a kitschy appeal of Nintendo consoles to where they've never really had to try and go for that graphic fidelity route. They've never had to, they've never really even had to compete with Sony and Microsoft. If we're being honest, like most people are happy with, choosing a PlayStation or an Xbox and then also having a Nintendo console like they're it's almost like they're not even direct competitors in a sense like I don't get that same vibe the big you have the you have you have PlayStation gamers and you have Xbox gamers duking it out and then in their spare time they're walking around with the switch at the same time and so it's interesting that they're pivoting from that in and in, in going that route so that's that's fascinating and like I said, I've I've just been dying to get back in. Okay, let's be honest. I just want to play Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> I really just want to play Tears of the Kingdom. And I want to go on this deep dive of Zelda. Um, so I may get like a used one or a discounted one just to get that, to scratch that itch until the Switch 2 comes out. But this is something that's going to be fascinating to watch. And, you know, I absolutely love when a, a console maker decides to be backwards compatible with the previous yes, console, yes. right? Um, because then there's really no no drawback in upgrading, you know, uh, because your entire previous library is playable on the new hardware, maybe with some additional benefits, and you have access to a new library of games, you know. So I think I think if that's true, that that is you know that'll make my heart happy because I love a good backwards compatible system. That's why upgrading to the Series S for only two hundred and fifty dollars, you know, especially when you could do something like an Affirm payoff. Like it was a no brainer to me because all the games, all the hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars I've spent on the Xbox one generation of gaming, I was ready to rock and roll right there with no hitches, no problems. I would so jump on that system if it wasn't for one little problem. I have a massive, massive 360 and Xbox one physical library. And without a disc drive, I can't play any of those games. (laughs) So uh, this is where physical kind of bit me in the butt a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I don't know if you could. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm. My dad always had me trained to like rig something up. I don't know if you could like get one of those external uh, disk drives that I used to have um, for like my my laptop. Like I I got a new laptop and I was like, oh crap, it doesn't have a disk drive. And my dad just gave me an external one that I hooked via USB. I don't even know if that's functional. I have no that idea, is. but. I, I would love it if it was because uh, I, I would love to be able to play Starfield, for example. But my uh, oh. my One X can't run it. <laughs> so. More on more on that later, dear friends. Talking about more on that, let's go ahead and talk about some news. I think you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel this week. Yeah, uh, we were talking <laughs> before we hit the record button. Um, we were up to like 15 minutes for, before recording time, and I still didn't have a news story. There's not a lot happening. And, you know, uh, so I, I found something on uh, Variety and it was also featured on comicbook.com about James Mangold, who um, was announced at the last Star Wars celebration that he's going to be directing another Star Wars main film. Um, and he also just, you know, had the Dial of Destiny, the Indiana Jones film, which lost a lot of money, did not perform well, but I don't know. I, I overall really enjoyed there's 
a multitude of reasons why it did not perform well at the box office. This little thing you may have heard of called the strike going on, um, probably being one of those big things. Uh, an aging demographic of Indiana Jones fans might be another, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I'm a fan of Mangold as a director. Uh, Logan is one of the diamonds in the rough of the X-Men franchise. One of the the films that actually works for me that I actually enjoyed. Um, and so he was talking on a podcast about um, the Boba Fett film that he was set to direct with Simon Kinberg, who also made his name in the X-Men film franchise for better or for worse in most cases um, about this Boba Fett movie that never happened. Um, and, you know, so a lot of things came to pass mostly around the, the reaction towards the solo film, which I still do not understand. I really love that movie. It's really fun. Yes, you have the snafu of the director's stuff and what make what you will of that. But that was a fun movie, especially the second and third acts of that. A lot of fun. Um, so he was talking about uh, that on a certain podcast of what that was going to look like. At this point, I, uh, I'm direct quoting. At the, at the point I was doing it, I was probably scaring the shit out of everyone. I was making much more of a borderline R-rated single planet spaghetti western. They probably never uh, would never be able to embrace Baby Yoda if I had made that. It didn't really belong to the world I was kind of envisioning. Uh, this, of course, references um, you know modern Star Wars, the Disney Plus era of the family friendly, trying to sell a bunch of merch. Like I can't tell you how much Grogu merch I have in my house. Um, my kids love it, uh, and everything. So it's really interesting to kind of see what would have been the book of Boba Fett was, a was hit and miss when it came to reviews. I enjoyed it. I'm not overly critical of stuff like that. I think a lot of people just want to find something to complain about. Um, everybody has a microphone, which seems ironic given that we have our own podcast, but I think, I think so many people like just want to gripe about something but it is fascinating to kind of see this what if in star wars and and you know i'm, I'm excited to see what mangle does honestly because what i've seen of his work as a director i've enjoyed um he is talking about this upcoming film as being a biblical epic like the ten commandments that's going to track the origins of the force um and that sounds fascinating to me so um i think it would have been cool to see that space western, spaghetti western of with Boba Fett, but I'm I I would I'd say I'm more excited about what he's going to do now. Yeah, you know, um, the Boba Fett show didn't particularly intrigue me. Um, I think modern Star Wars is very much a take it or leave it kind of proposal. You know, every time you see a project, you either take it or you leave it. You know, I don't think it's a a monolith, at least in my life, the way it used to be when I was a kid, you know, if, if it had Star Wars on it, I was there, you know, but I, I'm not quite that anymore, I don't think. Um, but I will say that I have come to the conclusion more and more um, in, in recent months that a lot of the stuff that is popping up as TV shows on Disney Plus would have been probably better served as a movie. Um, and I think... Uh, probably one of the the most obvious cases of that is uh, Obi Wan Kenobi. I think that the, the, that particular TV show felt a little, you know, kind of dragged out in places, and they had two different confrontations between between Obi Wan and Vader across that show that felt like they were basically two halves of the same confrontation. 
So I think compressing which that were, into a which nice... were spectacular. Oh, they were great, spectacular. But I I totally agree with you. I think if they would have cut the fat down and brought that down to a good two two and a half hour movie, it would have been an an, an absolute barn burner of a movie. And as a TV show, I think the response has been much more tepid to it. I think Boba Fett probably falls into that that same kind of area. I don't think that's necessarily great serialized storytelling right there. I think it would have been a great standalone movie. Um, and I think it's very sad what happened to Solo uh, because I like that movie as well. You know, again, it's not like, you know, Do you Shakespeare think that's an overreaction? Do you think that's an overreaction to Solo and why they've made these series? Absolutely. I think that's an overreaction to Solo. It's an overreaction to Solo. Um, and in combined with trying to create more exclusive content for the Disney Plus streaming platform, I think there's, there's those are Which two, is fine. two sides have, of the same. You have coin. Disney Plus. You have Disney Plus exclusive movies. You have Netflix exclusive movies, like HBO Max uh, or, or sorry Max exclusive movies. This is not like you don't have to make everything uh, an eight episode series or six episode series. Also, like, and there are shows that I like that do this. Why do we need a six minute credits? Like, stop it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but to me, I think ultimately they're making, they're making a big mistake in trying to turn everything into a show now. I think that uh, a lot of these things would be served better by much tighter storytelling. I think we're in a very weird era for television. And I think that's in large part because of streaming. But to me, a television show is long form serialized storytelling and a movie is this bite-sized thing. Uh, but for some reason, a lot of TV shows are now this bite-sized thing too. Like I miss, you know, having a 20 episode, 24 episode season of something um, because it meanders a little bit. You know, I like a lot of people say, well, you know, these shorter seasons are tighter storytelling. I don't necessarily think so because they're coming at it from the wrong angle. They're taking concepts for movies and and stretching them out it i think there's a lot of filler in in these short shows whereas you know a full-length tv show you know with a with a concept built on well we can tell a whole bunch of different kind of stories with this conceit even the detours even the experimental episodes don't feel like filler because they all serve this this larger you know concept um which is very broad and, and allows for a whole lot of different storytelling opportunities so um i guess this is a long way of saying i wish movies were you know movies and and tv shows were tv shows and this frankenstein in between thing that we have right now is not really particularly entertaining to me i think it's listening to you say that it it kind of dawned on me that i think we have some unintended consequences or we have the Mr. Bean meme of where he's like copying the dude's notes have you seen that clip where he's like Yes, copying the guy's work. Like I think a lot of these streamers, Disney Plus being one of the first ones out of the gate that was trying to be a direct competitor with Netflix. I think a lot of these streamers are just trying to copy the Netflix model when it comes to a series, and they have to make something a series. And I also think the other big one is there. It's the mcu fallout like where everything has to have a cameo everything has to have like a mid-credit everything has to have an interconnected bit and that's not necessarily the case if you tell a tight and good complete story you're not relying on that and as much as i love the intellectual properties that we're discussing right now i don't need 
like an oh my god moment. Like I don't need a social media reaction video for everything. Like the 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 last episode of Ahsoka gave me a great moment like that, but the the fewer those fewer of those that there are, the more meaningful that they are. But if you're trying to like manufacture an artificial moment like that every episode, like it's really interesting how you say that. And and I I've pressed the pause button on my my Buffy the Vampire Slayer um for multiple reasons. But kind of watching that show and how episodic and how formulaic it is it really kind of proves your point um i was a huge monk fan back in the day um there and there was i was also a huge um psych fan usa network you and i you and i kept usa network afloat <laughs> i think so yeah <laughs> with w- between between professional wrestling and those shows that showed up usually afterwards no i watch a lot of that in like syndication and and streaming but it's just so interesting like um even the um the sherlock holmes show elementary i used to be a big fan of on on um cbs because i'll watch lucy lou read the phone book um and gender bending that role was fascinating to me when that first came out um i fell off but it it was fascinating when it first came out um and it's just funny i was a big walker texas ranger fan like but the formulaic nature you know with 48 you know 48 minutes into an episode the big reveal is going to happen. And then you have the last 10 minutes of the episode is the conclusion and you can set your watch to it. But now we've tried to reset this formula. And like you said, this Frankenstein monster that we've created, I don't know that there's to, you know, like the young Frankenstein scene where it's like, it's alive. I don't know that it's alive in a lot of most cases. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's a very interesting situation. I think eventually um, it would be fun for us to do a whole episode where we just kind of discuss like the state of television and how streaming has affected storytelling. Um, I think that's a very, very rich um, area of discussion. All right, that wraps up Nerd News. Uh, When we come back from our first break, we are diving into DC's Amalgam Collection. Stick around. Welcome to the main segment of today's episode. We call it our byword. And based on how much we enjoyed last week's DC versus Marvel, we decided to dive right in to the amalgam books, which happened between issues three and four of DC versus Marvel, and where this mashed up smashed up mashed potatoes with the peas and the corn in it the kfc famous bowl of comic books between the big two in the 90s um this was peak 90s comics ladies and gentlemen um so there were 12 one shots six of which were published by marvel uh and we will look at those uh during our next episode but these six were published by Uh, DC Comics, and we will do similar to what we do with our Comic-Con or Star Wars Celebration reactions, where I just throw one up and Dave will react to it, we'll have a discussion, and we'll move on to the next. So, first, we have 
Amazon, which is an amalgam of Storm, Aurora Monroe, and Wonder Woman, um, written by John Byrne. Um, and what is your reaction to this one, Dave? All right, so um, I think Amazon puts us in an interesting position where we right away have to admit that the conceit that Amalgam Comics was merging two characters into one character was not always 100% true. In some cases, there were three characters merged together. And in some cases, there was like a, a part of the character was split off. Um, I'm looking, for example, at Dark Claw. Uh, that we're going to talk about later, which is supposed to be like Batman and Wolverine. But then you have a Bruce Wayne character running around separately elsewhere. So um, the one-to-one merging is not exactly what happened here. However, uh, when it comes to uh, Storm and Wonder Woman, I think I kind of figured out what was happening here because we get an interlude in the the book where um, Diana of Themyscira shows up and you're like, well, if she's merged with with Aurora Monroe, then how in the world is she a separate character? So there was a um, funny story uh, in these comic books. They had a fake letters page in the end of it um, where they basically like acted like this has been an ongoing series forever and there's all these events in the history and people are commenting on it. And one of the storylines that is alluded to on the letters page of this issue was the contest. And this was a Wonder Woman uh, story, actually, on for realsies in in DC Comics, where uh, Artemis uh, actually uh, won the right to be Wonder Woman, and Diana was actually not Wonder Woman for a little while. Uh, she, uh, you know, still starred in her own title and was running around in like biker shorts, um, but she wasn't Wonder Woman anymore. And Artemis, uh, another Amazon, served in that role. So my feeling. Uh, after reading this issue, is that um, Amazon, Aurora Monroe of Themyscira, is actually an amalgamation of Storm and Artemis, uh, which is how we still have uh, Diana running around separately. Um, So that was, I think, really an interesting uh, thing that they did here, uh, because you have this, like, sisterly dynamic between the two characters, but they're also rivals. Um, and I think that that was a really interesting choice here. But uh, the story basically, uh, you know, in short, is that we get uh, the origin story um, of Amazon, of Wonder Woman, uh, that she, uh, you know, is actually from the, the from man's world, was in a shipwreck, and then was raised as an Amazon and, and was named Wonder Woman. And she encounters Poseidon in this story, who's a bit of a <laughs> let's be honest, because he actually... <laughs> just a bit, just a tad. <laughs> Because he actually sunk the ship uh, that had her parents on it because her uh, dad was like a a professor, I guess, and was like studying antiquities and removed something of Poseidon's from the ocean floor. Um, And so she has like this this battle of, of both strength and wits with Poseidon throughout this issue. I think my favorite thing by far in this issue is that it's actually resolved with words and yes. not with okay. punching. I, I was hoping you were going to say this. Yes, love um, I love that. I love that she basically like got to Poseidon with her words and shamed him for his actions. Um, I, I thought that was probably the best, coolest thing about this because it really speaks to what I think is uh, an essential Wonder Woman trait, which is that she is. 
um, non-violent when she can, that she looks for the peaceful solution. And the fact that the character actually found this here is really cool. It was the um, one thing I liked about Wonder Woman 84. Yes, absolutely. Um, now, obviously, uh, you know, Byrne is a bit of a controversial um, figure these days. Um, I will say that uh, taking that out of the equation, I think the art overall is pretty strong here. The writing is very, very... Um, you know, reminiscent of a lot of his 90s work. Uh, he was obviously involved in, in Superman pretty heavily in the late 80s as well. Um, and so the writing, I think, of this, I, I have trouble judging because it feels sort of like a very comfortable old pair of jeans. You know, like I've been into this this guy's writing so much, you know, reading all of the Superman stuff he wrote that it feels very familiar and comfortable. Um I liked it overall. I think it was not without problems, but I thought it was a really interesting um, issue. And I think it also did something that a lot of Amalgam comics didn't do well, which is it makes it feel like there has been a story before this issue and that there's a whole lot of story potential after this issue. And I think there were a lot of Amalgam writers that missed that conceit a little bit. So when you reach the end of the issue, it feels like an end, not like there's more story to tell. Um, I'm looking at you, Assassins. Um, so uh, I, I like that a lot. It felt very much like a lived-in world. I think it worked on that level very well, Chris. What was your take? Yeah, my my greatest criticism um, is something that unfortunately has not gotten a lot better. And I call it the uh, crushed white strips effect when it comes to black characters and Storm being the most prominent black character in all of comics, perhaps, uh, suffers from it more so than than most. Um, yeah, this colorist uh, and I, we need to step outside. Um, also, John Byrne, who drew Storm a lot with um, both the Marvel team up and like, but his also Uncanny X-Men run with Chris Kiermont, he loves giving her the blue eyes. He loves giving her blue eyes. He also loves giving her cat's eyes, but more on cat's eye later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it it was really hard to overlook the whitening of Storm. Really hard to overlook um, the lightening of her skin tone. Um, also, just like the basic whiteness of the Greek pantheon. Um, you know, I'm a huge Percy Jackson fan. And so... I, I mentioned this to you in by text, like seeing Poseidon just as a straight up ass was was definitely an adjustment. And that's certainly one path that a lot of Greek mythology takes. Um, and DC is right up there with with the tops when it comes to de de depicting them as a-holes. Um, you know, Wonder Woman Historia is chief among them. A great, great story that I definitely need to go back and finish. I read the first one and was just captivated by it. Um, but I absolutely love the resolution. Um, the fact that she was like, listen, like, mankind has abandoned you because they found technology. They found science. They found other gods to replace you. And the one person that is trying to make you relevant again is who you banished to the bottom of the ocean. And so, like, that was just, like, an incredible moment, even better than Wonder Woman 84, um, in, in my opinion. But, yeah, it's really hard to overlook um, the sepia-tone storm. But, um, 
I, I enjoy this this issue overall. Like anytime the Greek gods are involved, I'm I'm usually there for it. Yeah, I had a, I had a lot of fun with this issue overall. Not not flawless, not without problems, but but a lot of fun, which I think is going to be for a lot of these books probably the common theme. Not not without problems, but a lot of fun, anyways. All right, buckle up, Buttercup, because we are headed to Assassins next. Uh, the creative team on this is Dan Chichester, Scott McDaniel, and Derek Fisher. Uh, Dave, just, just, just go. I hate this book. I I really dislike saying that about any comic book because I always look for redeeming qualities and everything. We are a very positive podcast, and we try to, you know, see the good in in everything. Um, we have our limits, and this is that limit. And this is that limit. Um, so Assassins is the story of Katsai, which is an <laughs> amalgamation. Just say it out loud! Wait till you see it spelled! Uh, which is the amalgamation of Catwoman and Elektra, hence Psy. It's not Cat's Eye, it's Cat Psy. Um, and Dare the Terminator... A amalgamation of Deathstroke, the Terminator, and Daredevil, which inexplicably two males makes a, f- a female, I guess. So these are two female assassins um, who are hired to take out the big question, <laughs> which, which is an amalgamation of Kingpin and Riddler. And he's very much called Big Question because he's still very, very obese. Um, only Get it? it He's turns... fat, Dave. Yeah, so it turns out that he actually hired them himself because he wants to take them out, and he also wants to, like, fake a assassination attempt on him since he's the mayor of Gotham, and he thinks he's going to get, like, sympathy votes, I guess. I don't even know where to start with this one, man. Uh, the amalgamations are are rough here. Um, it's it's very, very odd. Like, like Dare, for example... Okay, look, I understand why they wouldn't want to call a female character Dare Stroke, okay? Like, I, I totally get that. But it was not helpful that, in her, that her outfit is essentially, you know, ch- very cheeky, let's put it that way, and that most of her butt is hanging out. It's a very interesting design choice. It's peak 90s She's- comics, let me tell you. She's blind, but is also missing an eye and is wearing an <laughs> eye patch, which is like the ultimate vision overkill. Um, the thing is, like, Scott McDaniel's art here doesn't work, like, at all. Uh, there are places where I don't even know what's going on. The one, is... the one where Jimmy Urich, the one where Jimmy Urich, I'm looking at this page right now, and the big question just has this, like, straight face, looks like Grimace bleached face. Oh, God, it's... And and I'm actually a Scott McDaniel fan because he did he did a stint on Nightwing that I thought was really cool, very stylized, you know, but also very cool. Like, so I cannot say that I don't like McDaniel's art. Generally speaking, it's just that it doesn't it doesn't really work here. Um, the worst thing by far to me probably is the continuous puns. <laughs> hinting at who is included in these amalgamations at one at one point there's like an amalgamation that includes cable and it like mentions cybernetic cable With cybernetic cable yeah it and is. it's like it's always in in bold they refer to big question as a kingpin at one point and it's in big bold in the narration like it's so quote unquote punny that it's very very difficult to take seriously 
When I also get tired, I get cranky. Yeah. Also <laughs> on the on the fake letters page, they like have all these letters that are like these are characters that have been separate, and everybody has been clamoring for them to have like a a, a comic together, and then it ends with Dare dying. So Be- having her the... head squished by the kingpin. Oh, excuse so me. It's... The big question. So it's the first issue of a new series that is combining these two characters and then they immediately kill that one off. This is what I meant when I said th- this book isn't playing fair with the premise because it's supposed to leave you in a place where you feel like the story is going to continue. Also, okay, I, I want to mention something else that I find found really odd. So when when they talk about Cat's Eye's origin story, she's like living on the streets, Right. And it's like imitating cats in order to have like survival skills. But then, but then, but then out of nowhere, her dad is named an ambassador. Like that is the best rags to riches story I've ever heard from living on the streets to an ambassadorship in 2.2 seconds. I'm not quite sure that the combination of Catwoman and Electra works in that way. <laughs> like that, that, that just struck me really weird. But this is just like, out of the batch of comics I was that, we, that we read, and penniless at the same time. <laughs> this this is by far the worst of the six amalgam books we have read for this episode by a huge margin. I actually read these books when they were first released in the nineties, and even then, as as a kid of of twelve or thirteen, I was a middle schooler when I read this. I was like, this is dark doo-doo like i cannot believe somebody put this out seriously i do not know what misfired here but it just doesn't work on it's like farting on an elevator it's wrong on so many <laughs> levels it's just so bad chris the, you missed you missed another pun the fake letters page is called last rights as in w-r-i-t-e-s Oh my god. Uh yeah, I definitely had to be uh under the influence uh while I was reading this book and I had to go grab another one just so I could talk about it. Um the only only positive thing that I appreciated about this book is that Cat's Eye has beautiful curly hair and it's big. That's it. That's all I got. Everything else is, I told you, I think I texted you, I said, this is just when you're at the, like a character creation screen in a video game and you just spawn the randomized button and that's what you roll with. Like the, 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 there's like in each one of these in, in like the, the interior cover, there's like different variant covers, I guess. I don't know if they sold them physically or if these are just like sketches that they had or if they were just trying to build that lived-in universe that, yeah, this has been ongoing for a long time. This is totally not a one-shot gimmick. Um, but that one, that that cover with the big question, I told you, I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Not just in comics, it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. So, yeah, this is... Uh, I think I also told you this was the awkward love child of Batman and Robin and Jennifer Garner's Electra solo film. Maybe some of maybe some Affleck Daredevil in there, but I never made it through that whole movie. I just rage quit. I would probably say that this is worse <laughs> than any of the worst. <laughs> it's just 
man, this this comic makes me feel bad to be a comic book fan. I think that's the best way to put it. It just makes me bad that I like comic books. <laughs> Every time I was bullied, maybe they were justified. <laughs> that's when I was bullied as a kid for being a big old nerd. This is the comic that everybody read that was bullied. They saw me, this I, and was like, you know what? I should shove him in the locker again. Yeah, he deserves oh. it. Yeah. Oh my God. And they would be right. <laughs> All right, I'm hitting the emergency evac before we go too negative on uh, on this show um, because I'm going to follow this. We're going to follow this up with a book that I really dug, Dave. Um, maybe my fave. Uh, we're talking Doctor Strange Fate. It's my it's my second fave uh, on the list, but that, you know you probably know what my favorite was. Um, but yeah, this one makes perfect sense. You know, uh, written by Ron Mars, art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Um, it's about a uh, ostensibly a uh, a amalgamation of Doctor Strange and Doctor Fate, uh, two powerful magicians. So this is like a no-brainer. But it also ties into the narrative of the larger DC versus Marvel event as our friend Axis, um, who, uh, you know, I guess initially thinks he kind of caused this merged universe, although he really didn't, um, is is kind of trying to escape uh, and get away from Doctor Strange Fate, who is aware that he lives in an amalgamated universe and does not want access to separate the universes again and thereby destroy his reality. Um, so that, that that's a really cool conceit, actually, um, and gives access some interesting moments here, too, as he's trying to figure out his, his powers. But there's so much cool stuff going on uh, in this book. It is, art-wise, uh, one of the strongest. It's absolutely mm-hmm. uh, yeah. gorgeous. Real quick, gorgeous I want to... I want to real quick. We have Ron Mars on script, who just proves all of the prophesying and the the um, all the love that you've been giving him on this podcast. I'm getting, I get it now. Um, with yeah, he, he's he's fantastic and, here. Uh, and Jose Luis Garcia on pencils, Kevin Nolan on inks, Matt Hollinsworth on colors and separations, um, and, and Chris Eliopoulos on letters. I just wanted to give our creator some love there because it is absolutely it it is a beast uh we've we have uh dr strange fate calling on some agents of his including bruce banner the skulk which is apparently an an amalgamation of uh, solomon grundy and the hulk although the way he john constantine there's definitely some John Constantine going on here with the way he carries himself and the way he dresses. I, I thought the purple pants were a nice touch in the outfit, though. <laughs> yeah, um, and the dress we shoes. Have, we have Frankie Rayner, Jade Nova. I cannot speak to this character much. There's some Kyle Rayner here, but there there's also some, seems there's to be... There's some... Um, oh, Guy Gardner, for sure. There seems to be some some Jade in there too, though, who was like I think Rainer's girlfriend uh, in the comics at the time. She's like the uh, the daughter of the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott. But I do not know the Marvel character. I don't. In this I don't character. either, to be honest. And then uh, Wanda Satara, the White oh, Witch. Oh God! Z- ho- holy crap, dude! Uh, even I as felt a kid, feelings. I felt yeah, the- feelings. This la- this lady made me sweat when I was a this kid. Was, I am not gonna this lie. Was, this was Doctor Chase Meridian, Nicole Kidman in Batman Forever. You guys want to know why I defend Batman Forever? Nicole Kidman alone, and that's the same vibes from here. Sorry, I had to cut it. Absolutely, off. you are you are one hundred percent correct. And so he sends these agents out to collect access, and access has like these series of uh, confrontations. 
um, and ends up getting, of course, captured by the White Witch. All she has to do is climb on top of him and give him a kiss to knock him out, and this is done, because that's just how she rolls. Um, and then we have a great, great, great uh, moment where Strange Fate is like trying to take like the the power away from Access, the the splinters, the leftovers from the original universes. But Access, smart and stupid as he is at the same time, doesn't have them. He's hidden them. He manages to escape. And then we get to the end and Strange Fate realizes he failed. His universe is at an end. He takes off the helmet of Naboo and it's freaking Charles Xavier underneath there. It is such a twist to the end of this book. It is so good. The art sings, the writing sings. It it just works. And I would I would love to see more of like this whole conceit. I think there's just something really cool about this one. It just it it's awesome, Chris. Awesome. It's it's far and away, um, and we'll talk about your fave because I totally get it. It feels like that book was written specifically for you and why you preferred it was, that one I over think. this. They, they, <laughs> it, uh, they, it was, we know. <laughs> <laughs> they they did a special like personality assessment, um, and they pulled you, and they were like, well, let's make this book for Dave. Uh, no, that last page reveal where it's really Charles Xavier, uh, I have always said that uh, the age of accountability for X-Men fans is when you realize that Charles Xavier is the master manipulator and the chief gaslighter. Like that's when you grow up and we, it's it's your puberty, if you will, as an X-Men fan, is you realize he's the And so this is totally in character for him to manipulate for his own means to do whatever it takes, like some shady behaviors some master manipulation. Uh, and I, I loved everything about this book. Um, and maybe I was wrong about Wanda. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to look at Wanda through a different lens. Uh, and I'm going to, I guess have to read every Zatanna book that was ever done because Holy crap. What a character. Uh, I, I, I loved everything about this book. Mars is cooking, man. I need to pick up where I left off with that Kyle Rayner green lantern. I got to the fridge issue and i was just like okay i get what we were talking about and i tapped out but i'm gonna have to pick it back up because when it comes to cosmic and apparently magic and just weird my guy ron mars i get what you were talking about dude i totally get it yeah it's just good stuff i i got nothing else it's just good stuff God, i want an ongoing i want an ongoing of this series oh all right, another one um, that I was kind of meh to start with, but it kind of won me over as I went. We have JLX from Mark Wade, Gerard Jones, Howard Porter, and John Dell. Because with that creative team, you you have to love it. Yeah, there's 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 definitely good stuff here. Uh, JLX um, is, is a really interesting twist on 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 your favorite peeps, the whole conceit of mutants, right? So we have. Uh, Oh God! Howard Porter was on on JLA with uh, with Morrison ah uh, and Mark Wade, of course. Uh, Gerard Jones was last time I checked one of the Green Lantern writers before Ron Mars. Um, the less said about him, the better, I think. Um, anyways, so what we have here is we have the Judgment League Avengers, the JLA, um, and they get a Splinter Group of people whose powers are mutant in origin and they go off and form their own team um, over a conflict 
around the very first mutant, the Mariner, who is a amalgamation of um, the Submariner Namor and Aquaman. Um, so he's accused of, of having done something which he says he's innocent of, and they throw him in jail, and the, the the book basically is to JLX breaking him out and then going in search of Atlantis, uh, which is uh, at this point uh, lost. They don't know where Atlantis is. So you have members uh, Angel Hawk, which is a merging of Angel and Hawkman. You have Apollo, which is, um, I think it's Aztec from the from Morrison's JLA and Cyclops. We have... Uh, uh, Chaos, I think, which is Spitfire and Havoc. We have Firebird, which is um, Phoenix and Fire, I believe. Um, some of these amalgamations were not easy to figure out because there's no official there's no official guide. You know, fans are just kind of guessing, right? Mercury very clearly is Quicksilver and Impulse. Mister X is uh, Professor X and Martian Manhunter. Uh, I have to say, Night. Oh, Creeper spoiler alert! Cool. <laughs> uh, Night Creeper was a cool surprise. I that think. was so uh, fun! Oh my Nightcrawler god! Nightcrawler and the Creeper was a great amalgamation. Uh, we also had Runaway, um, which is Rogue and Gypsy, and Wraith, which is Obsidian and Gambit, and they they set up some interesting stuff in this book. Like, for example, you know. Playing off the 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 Gambit and, and Rogue relationship, Runaway and Wraith are in a relationship, and they they do this thing where she, he has like this darkness, you know, based on Obsidian from from DC, and she can touch him without you know hurting him or taking his powers away. But he is starting to realize that she's actually absorbing parts of his darkness, and it is affecting her morality like she's turning into a darker and darker person like that kind of layered storytelling in this book i thought was so cool and again speaks to like this idea that this is a lived-in world and this has been going on this whole time and will continue right i love the reveal at the end when they find atlantis and it's empty and they're like well where did all the people go and mr x who has been brought them together and has been leading them reveals himself to be uh, an alien and he says you know i i relate to the mutants because i'm an outcast too and i want to help you and, and that was a really cool twist i think and a really cool play on his telepathy too because you could you know see the xavier of it all with telepathy but absolutely but adding that in there was fascinating yeah so i really really like this book and i think having porter on the art gave it immediately um a, a jla vibe from that era like the art mm -hmm. feels like he, yes. he brought the exact same vibe and style to it it's so epic and like the close-ups on the characters is great close-up on like mercury the the quicksilver impulse um merge and it's like that that look of determination and the gritted teeth it's a great shot it very much feels of a cloth with this epic morrison you know porter jla run so uh, I love this. I, I I thought it was very very cool. I'm not the you know the biggest X Men fan. You know this, um, but the way that they merged these characters here, I thought they created a really interesting dynamic and a really interesting concept. Like I would love to see this group 
of mutants in search of Atlantis. Like, I think that yes. is such a cool conceit for a story. Looking for their the home of their ancestry and like looking exactly for a safe place, a haven, if you will. Uh, yes. No, here's here's a deep cut. You also get like the um, the Bishop M tattoo on Martian Manhunter slash Mister X. So that was fascinating. That was cool. For, yeah. For X- yeah. Um, the the amalgam character that was Nightcrawler and Beast Boy or whoever like that was really really cool. Um, it was it was hilarious to me. Um, I saw the Gambit esque character. I I didn't know the DC counterpart, so I saw some Nightcrawler in him as well. Um, but then you have like uh, Rogue, who's like I I basically I was like that's just rogue if it ain't broke don't fix it i guess with 90s comics and the popularity of rogue from the x-men animated series and uh let's be honest the cake um, and then as as a cyclops fan uh i was always happy to see who is aztec i don't know who that is but i'm i'm fast i'm fascinated to do a deep dive now based on that because as a cyclops fan the transitive properties already have me intrigued and then um i'm a, i'm a namor fan I'm a Namor, like, I, 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 I'm really fascinated by Namor, uh, in the comics and, like, his elitist nature, but, like, at the same time, like, he's not all wrong, you know, he's, he's, he's spitting facts sometimes. Yeah, uh, Aztec, if I remember correctly, was a Morrison creation, uh, in JLA and got a spinoff series in the 90s that was, uh, decently successful um but the character has not really been used in several years was a cool character though um i, I think you'll be interested i think there was something there uh, uh, some Meso- here for an aztec m- revival listen if there's mesoamerican mythology uh, you know i'm in yeah uh we give we give greco-roman that's why and it's unfortunate the stuff that's come out about tenoch huerta because like welcome to 2023 uh you know these people these celebrities that we build up have accusations of sexual assault come out but regardless of that it's it can be hard to separate art from artists with with deplorable things like that jonathan majors as well um we we still don't know what to make heads or tails of that what marvel's going to do but i still hold that what they did with namor in wakanda forever was just absolutely a stroke of genius um and just including mesoamerican mythology when we have greco-roman saturation to the nth degree nor saturation when it comes to mythology but mesoamerican mythology gets kind of waylaid and african mythology gets waylaid and kind of kicked to the side so any any influx of lesser appreciated lesser mainstream mythology I'm, I'm here for all right now we go to another peak 90s book probably if you're talking about the 1990s the two most popular characters of that time a complete amalgamation of wolverine and batman i'm just excited to hear your reaction to this because i love the way you pronounce wolverine wolverine why is it the German accent? It's, that's it's, the, it's the German W that gets me. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, I love so it. Co- I, I unironically love it. 
I'll tell you right now that the cover to this was a poster hanging in my wall at one point. Absolutely. Um, I see why. The, yeah, it's an absolutely gorgeous cover. In retrospect, I will freely admit that Dark Claw may be the single most overdesigned character in all yes. of Amalgam. There real are quick, so many we'll, Real quick, Dave, I want to get in here. I want to get in here with our creative team. Larry Hama, who Larry Hama gets it um, for, for many reasons that I'll cover in a moment. Larry Hama, Jim Ballant, and Ray McCarthy. Yeah, so um, I, I will I will say easily the most overdesigned character in all of Amalgam. All the all the spikes and protrusions, the teeth, and the teeth, the teeth on his mask. I was like, the teeth what? on his mask. <laughs> but but you know what? I will say it. There is something so '90s cool about this suit yeah. in its excesses. I can't help but just love it. Like it's just it's it's cool. It it just it, it's cool. I can't help it. Um, what we get is very much an amalgamation of the idea of Batman and, and Wolverine. You know, he was orphaned. He grew up in Canada. He was part of an experiment. He was the experiment's failure. You have uh, the success, uh, a, a killing machine that is insane, <laughs> which is Hyena, right? Great amalgamation of the Joker oh, and Sabretooth. Great, great. That is, a, that is a great bad guy character. Like, that amalgamation just worked. The design is... is you know, sufficiently freaky, sure, but I think just the character just works. Um, of course, Darkclaw has a sidekick, Sparrow, uh, which is an amalgamation of Jubilee from the X-Men and, and Tim Drake Robin, which means, of course, that the two got to be very, very close with each other, even in the Amalgam universe. So hey, uh, congratulations, yo. you two lovebirds. <laughs> <laughs> um, I could have said that in a much worse way, but um, this is very much just the straight up crazy action flick of uh, of this this lineup right it feels a fun, very much a, another like... another fun one with Huntress and Carol Danvers yeah you know that amalgamation is just okay to me i think she was such a non character in this like she she re- didn't really have any distinct kind of a vibe. kind of a pov a little bit but not like very much so com- not a full commitment to the pov though Yes, if she feels like sort of a blank slate and more of a a tool for us to have somebody there that Darklaw can tell his origin story to, basically, and give a tour of his cave and everything, right? Um, I'm shocked how good the 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 Sparrow design is with with the Jubilee base, basically the Jubilee design, but in a Robin suit. I have to say that design really kind of rocks. Um, better much better than i anticipated um and i just like the action of it all it's a very very fast moving action-packed story you know with with dark claw taking on hyena who's after you know you know wants to take out the president um he's trying to save him you know the the secret service who is who is just bill clinton it's straight up bill clinton (laughs) it's straight up bill clinton and it it ends in a great cliffhanger as he falls out of the airplane and and sparrow saves him and he's like hanging from the wheel of his plane and it's like okay now it's time for me to get another crack at the hyena and then it's like bam there's your cliffhanger you know um and in that sense, it to- totally works as an amalgam book. There's history before, there's history after. You know, there's all sorts of story potential. Um, I have a I have a soft spot for this one. I don't think it's as good as I like to think it is. I, I think it's a little straightforward in places and a little overdesigned, particularly in the in the suit of Dark Claw. But I have a big soft spot for this one. I really really liked it. It's interesting reading this in hindsight because um, you know, as a Johnny come lately to comics. Um, 
It's really fascinating. It's almost like looking at a time capsule with this comic. Um, we've we've dug it we've dug it up with our claws, and here's what we have. Here's the end result. Um, I think I texted you. This is, I I understand like the cult classic appeal of this. It really felt, especially that intro. It felt like one of those Hong Kong, like Jackie Chan. Chow Yun Fat, like Hong Kong, like action, like beat em up kind of cult classic films. Uh, and it was just really fun. Like, it was not the best when it came to like comparing it against uh, some of the others. It wasn't the best overall, like Doctor Strange Fate or, or Super Soldier, which we'll get to. Um, but it was a, it was a heck of a lot of fun. Um, and it absolutely maximized, I would imagine, okay, you know, I'm doing this in hindsight with, with no frame of reference of what was, what was happening at the current landscape. But I, I would imagine that it maximized on the popularity of Batman and Wolverine from their respective animated series. Yeah. And in fact, if I remember correctly, and if we get to do, uh, eventually season two of Amalgam Comics, the, the second uh, season featured a Dark Claw book that was basically straight up what if Dark Claw had Batman the animated series. Like, it, that's what it looked like. Like, they did completely pitched away from this hyper-realistic look and went straight into Batman the animated series as a look. And that was a very, very cool book, uh, if I remember correctly. It's been a few years since I read it, but it'd be fun to revisit. Uh, I'm in, but without further ado, the book that was created for Dave... Let's talk Super Soldier. Um, we are looking at um, amalgamation of Clark Kent, Superman, uh, <clears throat> and uh, Captain America. So, I mean, like, real, real, almost like B-movie. It's funny because we're such fans of, like, um, Mystery Science Theater 3000 and, and Rift Tracks and, like, all those, like, old black and white movies. And this felt like an like an old sci-fi B-movie, Dave. Yes, and to me, it had by far the coolest conceit at the at the cliffhanger for the ongoing story of what's going on here. So we have Super Soldier by Mark Wade and Dave Gibbons, and oh my God, is this a dream team. Um, anytime there's an S involved, I want Mark Wade on it anyways, right? Uh, but, but you have uh, human Clark Kent, who joins an experimental program to become a super soldier during World War II. Only the super soldier serum that he gets is actually based on alien DNA from a recovered body from from a UFO crash. Um, uh, Much like uh, Captain America, he goes into suspended animation. He is revived in modern times um, and has to take on uh, one of his great enemies, the Green Skull, who... I think this is a stroke of genius. It's Lex Luthor, who's actually oh. a hero of a hero yes! of World War II for yes! developing the bomb that ends the war. Only unbeknownst to the world, uh, the bomb, the K-bomb, is actually based on kryptonite, right? Um, and of course, he injected some kryptonite into himself as a way of prolonging his life, which is why he's green, uh, which is a nice nod to all the stuff that happened to Lex Luthor in the DC comics because he was exposed to kryptonite, right? Um and uh, he, you know, brings back the uh, weapon that was used in the end there by the Nazis, Ultra Metallo, which is fueled by kryptonite, and Super Soldier has to take it on and take it out, right? Um, 
and it's absolutely fantastic. It's just a great book. Uh, visually, it's a great merging of, of Captain America and, and, and Superman. The shield is now the S. Uh, that I think that is so cool. <laughs> like the S shield is now literally a shield. Um, the art is, is is beautiful here. I think it, it captures that sort of uh, World War II and uh, vibe and that man out of time vibe perfectly. Um, and I love the cliffhanger with the realization that Super Soldier is is weaker now than he was during World War II because the entire Earth is basically coated in low level kryptonite radiation, which is and a so really he's... fascinating like meta contextual of the aftermath of dropping bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I I just, I I would love to see that story continue. Like, how does he cope with that? How does he, how does he push past that? Knowing that he's not as strong as he used to be and he's still trying to be a hero. Does he continuously get weaker over time? You know, like there's so much story potential here. I wish I would have gotten more of this. But yeah, putting Captain America and Superman together and then putting Mark Wade on it to write it is like, you know, d- designed in a lab to appeal specifically to me. <laughs> you know, like I absolutely love this. You're, issue. this you're the, the super the soldier. You're the super soldier. <laughs> I just, I, I love this book. I, I thought it was so fun. I just had a blast reading it, Chris. My only, my only nitpick is the shield. Um, I love the fact that it is an S, but, and I know you're going to say, Chris, they have the tri- a triangular shield for Cap. I think it's dumb. I think it's to be circular, especially if you're given the boomerang. In fact, there's just something about a giant frisbee that I love. That's just maybe that's a personal nitpick. But I love the amalgamation of Metallo and Ultron, like, and the fact that it was secretly controlled by Luther. The fact that Luther's just chilling in his bathrobe—it's hilarious. It's so Luther, isn't it? Though. <laughs> Like I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go kill Superman in my bathrobe. That sounds very much like a Lex Luthor thing. Like, <laughs> like I swear, I expected to have the cast. I expected to have Tom Servo and and Crow T Robot like making commentary while I was reading this book. This felt like something that should be on on MST3K. I I, I really truly enjoyed this book. Um, and as a fan of like history and and U. Excuse me, U.S. history, like. I think I think that meta contextual thing about the aftermath of uh, atomic war, um, and and the unintended consequences and the fallout of that. I think that was just such a stroke of genius, and um, not really surprising when you see Mark Wade with a writing credit. Yeah, I wanted more of this one too. I really did. Like, I would have loved to see more. All right, that is all of the six one-shots from DC Slate of Amalgam Books. Uh, next episode, we're going to flip the script, and Dave is going to kick it to me on the Marvel books. So that kind of worked out perfectly. Um, Dave, what's what's your overall, I guess, assessment of this? I know we do this with reviews. Um, we may have to, uh, to throw an asterisk in there with Assassin's. Yeah, I think this was overall a really fun collection of stories. I think... Um... Strange Fate and Super Soldier are kind of top of the line for me to the point where I'd actually like to read more of those stories. Um, I think Legends of the Dark Claw comes in a close second there. Um, JLX and Amazons are are in third place for me. I think I think those are both interesting conceits. Um, JLX, I think in particular, were just such a large cast. You know, it just needs more room to breathe to really get into. But I could see. Yes, but I could see this actually being 
uh, a top tier sort of book with the conceit of looking for Atlantis and, and assassins is just the, it's just, it's so bad. And it's the only thing that really made this a not, you know, 100% fun experience. Even the weaker books in the stack were really, really good except for assassins. Yeah. Uh, you ever get a, you ever get an assignment turned in Dave um, where, it's it's mostly solid and it's mostly like great work and then they just make up some crap on one answer i see this a lot being a foreign language teacher like they're mostly solid i'll get a test back and like they're solid they're solid and then they're just straight up making up words (laughs) i'm like yeah that was assassins you're just making stuff up you know what's really funny about the next batch i was looking at the list there are two books on the list that i don't remember at all and I know I had them because I had the entire 12 one-shots, but there's there's two here that I do not remember at all. So re, rereading this is going to be interesting. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to this. Um, when we come back from this, our final break, we are going to talk about the good stuff. You know it is Nerd Commendations. Often imitated, never duplicated. We are talking... All right, Dave, I see Kelly Thompson and I'm already there. Yeah, you know, I I, I did say some things in the lead up to this uh, book launching uh, when we first discussed it uh, as far as, you know, the news that it was coming. But Kelly Thompson is uh, writing a new Birds of Prey book uh, with Leonardo Bastos Romero on uh, art. And uh, initially I was a little questionable about the lineup in particular, uh, the inclusion of Harley Quinn. And the exclusion of both Huntress and and Barbara Gordon, uh, as a huge Birds of Prey fan and somebody who's read every issue of Birds of Prey in the various incarnations, um, to me the uh, dynamic between uh, Black Canary and uh, Barbara Gordon, be she Oracle or Batgirl, is sort of the heart of the book, and so I was a little sad that you know that wasn't happening. Um, however. I am willing to say that despite my misgivings about that exclusion, this is an absolutely solid book. Uh, here's a tagline from DC. Uh, every mission matters. Every life saved is a miracle. But this time it's personal. Dinah Lance is one of DCU, uh, DC's most elite fighters and combined with her sonic scream, she's a fearsome foe in any scenario. But sometimes even the Black Canary needs help. Faced with a personal mission brought to her by a mysterious new ally and up against near impossible odds, she reforms the Birds of Prey with an unrivaled group of badasses, Cassandra Kane, Batgirl, Big Barda, Zealot, and Harley Quinn. And only one goal, extraction without bloodshed. But what could possibly go wrong? Uh, who she's trying to extract is uh, Sin, a uh, character that is related to uh, Black Canary, and where she's trying to extract her from, spoiler alert, is revealed to be Themyscira. So they're going to try to actually save somebody from the Amazons, <laughs> which is going is just an absolutely fun conceit, jailbreaking somebody from Paradise Island. Um, so yeah, I really liked this. I thought the art was really good. Um, but most importantly, I think to me is that Kelly Thompson gets these characters and does a really good job capturing them. Her Black Canary feels like the Black Canary I've been reading about for most of my life. Uh, her Cassandra Kane is a little more talkative than I like, but that's been uh, a common problem 
with DC Comics, they put a lot of words in her mouth when she's much more a silent type. I do like, though, that there is a part of the book where Cassandra Cain says, let me tell you a story. And when she's done, everybody's like, you hardly even said anything. You're not good at telling stories. And I was like, okay, you you get that she's supposed to be quiet, right? Her big barda is really fun. Um, and even though I think we've re- we're reaching an oversaturation point with Harley Quinn, I think I think she actually works quite well here so far. Um, so I am going to reserve judgment on the inclusion of Harley in this book. I'm I'm kind of I'm optimistic. Um, they make actually a plot point out of the fact that uh, Barbara Gordon is not there because this mysterious new ally is basically saying that uh, Black Canary cannot tell Barbara Gordon what she's getting ready to do, and so I'm very interested to see where this is going because it hints towards. Uh, a future confrontation or inclusion of the character, which I think would be very, very smart for the book um, and would be a big um, fan favorite moment, I think, for fans of previous Birds of Prey incarnations. So I really, really liked this. I thought it was solid and I'm I'm going to continue reading it. Um, so I really liked it. It's highly, highly uh, recommended, Chris. That's really exciting because like I've seen enough um you know personal experience with some of these characters but there are some that i know that are popular amongst dc heads uh like cassandra kane like big barda um that i don't really have any frame of reference for uh, and i totally agree with your over uh with your commentary about about harley quinn being overly saturated at this point she's become the deadpool or the wolverine of the tens um when it comes to dc comics it seems from an outsider's perspective um, but I, I really trust the pen of Kelly Thompson. Um, so I think I think also like what I like about this Dawn of DC initiative, it feels like a really new reader friendly jumping on point. And so I'm I'm excited to give this book a look. Also, also Jordi Belair, also Jordi Belair, I'm in. Colors. Like one of the best colorists in the game. And did the cover art as well, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, Chris. So let's let's talk about this thing you've been itching to talk about. What are you Ugh, recommending this? Yeah, uh, believe believe the hype, man. Uh, Starfield. It is Xbox's like darling of this generation. It's it's the big selling point of the Bethesda acquisition and everything, and it is everything that it purports to be. In my opinion, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. This is very much a Bethesda production, and that is not a criticism. Um, I think that gives um, like some comfortability. So this is like Fallout 4 um, or Skyrim through a sci-fi lens. So that gives a level of comfortability. Is it reinventing the wheel? Maybe not, but... um, I, I really, really enjoy this experience that I've been on um, over the past couple of days. It is in in the same respect of especially Skyrim. It can be overwhelming to start off with just the vast number of possibilities once you get out of that tutorial phase. Um, for those of you that are uninitiated, Starfield is an action RPG developed by Bethesda Game Studios, famous for fallout franchise famous for uh the elder scrolls franchise um and it is exclusive to the xbox series 
uh, it was, excuse me, were released for Windows and Xbox Series X and S on September 6, 2023. Um, and I'm really just having a great time. Like, I'm getting my Han Solo on. Like, I just get to be a space cowboy and just do whatever I want. And, and it is, that level of comfortability is is a real additive feature, in my opinion, of, like, the constructing tables. Um and adding mods to your weaponry and creating outposts and you know people might be critical of the fact that it is it is not it's very much like a Bethesda game and it's very reminiscent of those previous franchises but i think just the grand scale that it's on uh, the planetary scale the galactic scale that it's on there's you can go and scour planets for resources there's so much that you can do so like this is a very early nerd commendation because i've only been playing for a couple of hours but like it is it is totally worth the price of admission which it's funny if you're a game pass subscriber there is no price to admission other than your monthly subscription service so Maybe this is just another way of me saying that Game Pass is the best value in comics because I'm just having the most fun. Just being in outer space and just giving in to all the sci-fi nerdy tendencies that I've loved since I was a small child. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to trying this. Of course, I'm going to have to uh, I'm going to have to do something, you know, Um I, uh, I've, yeah, I've read, I've read repeatedly that it's uh, a, a difficult, um, a difficult run on the Steam Deck. Otherwise, I'd run with the Windows version. Um, so, uh, and I can't really run it on my Xbox yet. So, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to make it a choice here of which route I'm gonna take to try to actually play this game. There's been some updates for it for Steam that are, are supposed to get it closer to playable. So maybe I'll just hang back and let it. Um, you know, figure itself out for Steam Deck a little bit first. But I'm really looking forward to giving this a try because it, it's right up my alley. Um, you know, people are saying, well, it's just Skyrim in space. And I'm like, you don't have to sell it so hard, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sounds good to me. I'm there. Yeah. For it. Let's go. Which is funny because you're not the biggest high fantasy kid. So like, no, what you would have enjoyed like... what you would have enjoyed about Skyrim. You can absolutely wholly embrace with Starfield. That's exactly right. It's much more my my cup of tea. I'm I'm actually at a conundrum at the time of recording because it's the first NFL Sunday, but I want to play Starfield, so I may have to have multiple screens going at the same time. Uh, and you're rolling your eyes in German right now. Well, yeah, it's it's sometimes good to not care about football. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd Byword. What did you think of these amalgam issues? If you were reading along, um, be sure to give us a like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Apple Podcast, Spotify, or our very own website, nerdbyword.com. And find us on social media. We'd love to hear what you thought of these Amalgam comics or what your thoughts are on Starfield. I know there's quite a bit of talk going on around that game right now. Or or how you enjoyed uh, Birds of Prey number one from DC Comics. You can find us on most major uh, social media platforms at Nerd by Word and individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. 
find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Thank you.